what you're keying in on. And that helps me to interpret what's important to you and um, what kind of speakers um, uh, you like to hear from. So it helps me in the future uh, guide my selection process. Um, were there any projects or methods employed that represented sustainable uh, approach to conservation and restoration? Why or why not? So I'm just giving you some ideas on how to approach that to probe you and help you think about the speakers and think about how the speakers relate to one another. Um, the paper is due on Friday, December 11th. That's the, um, the day that your final would have been on uh, had this been an exam type course. Uh, and please put that paper <coughs> in my mailbox in 131 Hall. Um, and that's due by 5 p.m. on that Friday, December 11th. Uh, um, I cited a, a reference down there at the bottom. Uh, it's called the Atlas of the Biodiversity of California. It's a really wonderful um, overview of a lot of conservation issues in California. It's not that expensive. I believe the bookstore, or the bookstore is the bookstore. I don't know what's happening this year. Blown over to art or something uh, while they're renovating. So I don't know if they have, I don't think they have very much of their books uh, for sale, but normally the bookstore carry this particular book, which you can get. I think you can get it off the web, um, and uh, it's just a very good resource in general. Any questions about the assignment for the course? Good. Let's move on to the second handout, the list of speakers. And today is the 25th. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm going to be talking today about um, topic right here. Get to that in a moment. Um, next week we have a former alumni from the Landscape Architecture Program coming to talk with us, Drew Getting. Um, Drew was one of my first students when I was hired uh, as, an, as an undergrad. He was an undergrad. Uh, around 2000, so he's about 15 years out now, and uh, he founded this group called the uh, Restoration Design Group, which, boy, if I was looking for a job these days, that's one of the firms I'd want to I think they just do the most interesting type work in the Bay Area, largely um, looking at um, restoring creeks and restoring creeks from the point of view of daylight. So taking creeks that have been put in pipes into the ground, former creeks that float on the surface that were beautiful, are in a lot of urban areas in pipes under the ground. That's where they are. And there's a big movement um, in landscape architecture and um, environmental design to try and bring these creeks back out of their pipes uh, upon the opportunity to do so. And there aren't that many opportunities, but they do come up. Um, and he's going to share with us um, some of his projects. Uh, one is an incredible schoolyard project where they brought the creek right out and into the schoolyard. I mean, it's just fabulous. So Drew's going to give us an um, introduction to that type of work. Um, the following week, um, October 9th, Andrew Folks. How many of you know Andrew Folks? Heard that name? Oh, awesome. <laughs> Andrew is incredible. Also, a former alumni of the Landscape Architecture Program. Uh, boy, he graduated way before ICE was hired, so he's been out many, many years. Um, and he, he, he's got multiple hats that he puts on and takes off. And uh, one hat is he's the president of Tulio, a um, local conservation group that seeks to um, create recreational opportunities and conservation of um, Northern California's uh, fauna and flora. He is an extraordinary trail planner. He has, he's the president of this group. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Andrew. Um, Andrew was so taken aback when he moved to the Central Valley that there was nowhere to hike. It, it sort of offended him. And he's got this a Frederick Law Olmsted streak at him. And he has this vision for the valley that's so radically different than what it is now. Uh, it's fascinating to watch him work and to watch him think. 
because he started this group too young. It's now an enormous uh, coalition of, of people that have come together to do conservation work. And they're buying ranches that once blocked access to public land. And so the whole, um, it's, it's the Berryessa Peak uh, Bureau of Land Management lands that are publicly owned, but are surrounded by ranches that won't allow access to that public land. And um, he went about trying to figure out, ooh, are there willing sellers around here that might want to uh, sell us their ranch and give us, and then we could have access? Um, and he has done this. So he's busting open the countryside for us to actually experience our own watershed, which we didn't have access to before. Interesting, um, very interesting. His other hat is as uh, assistant director of UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. And um, he's done an enormous amount of work on campus. If you've seen the, the turf coming out of all those medians, you notice that? That's him. Okay, it's a concerted effort to reduce water consumption on campus. And uh, they started this very, very start of the drought was, was the impetus to start that process. So he's going to tell us about various things, um, but the big thing on his plate right now is a huge accomplishment by Tulioni, and um, full disclosure, I have been convinced to go on the board of directors of Tulioni, so I have a little biased about that group. I think they're great. Um, uh, but the big accomplishment was the designation of the Snow Mountain uh, Berryessa uh, National Monument, which is uh, about 100 some odd miles, square miles of more than that, of, of land stretching from essentially um, Lake Berryessa all the way up to uh, Mendocino National Forest. A gigantic swath of land has been designated this national monument. And what that does is it opens it up to uh, different types of federal funding to develop recreational opportunities. So um, it's an incredible, um, this was a Decision by uh, President Barack Obama just very recently, and uh, the celebration was just last month. So uh, it's a very recent thing. He's going to tell you about the story of probably a chunk of the story about how that came to be. Um, a big, big thing in our region. Uh, so that's Andrew Fultz. Um, following him, another alumni of our program, um, Chris Dundon. Chris was actually uh, a cohort of mine. Uh, we went to UC Davis together in this program. We both have LDA degrees. Um, I went on to get my graduate degrees in ecology. Chris went into, um, into practice, and he's now a water conservation supervisor in the conservation water district. Um, and he's going to describe to you um, uh, opportunities for landscape architects to get into um, the profession of water conservation. Um, he's got decades of experience with this now, and I thought, what better time to invite Chris to talk here in the fourth year of the epic 500-year drought of California. So he's going to tell us about the various programs, state, um, um, regional, and local programs to promote water conservation. And you, you've seen the lawns in, in, around California, at least in Northern California, and Davis especially, a lot of dead lawns out there. Mine's dead, and I'm actively designing right now my new front yard. Uh, so Chris is going to talk, talk to us about various programs. Uh, switching gears a bit, um, Mitch Sears is not an alumni from our program or from UC Davis, uh, but he's an extraordinary person um, running the uh, sustainability programs in the city. So I put in a couple of lectures this uh, quarter uh, that focus more on um, the sustainable environment design aspect as opposed to landscape architecture uh, proper, uh, because we're going to be changing this, this uh, seminar to more of a balance of, between the sustainability program and the landscape architecture program. So you're going to get a little bit of both. And uh, Mitch is, is my attempt uh, to just to bring that into the, uh, into the mix. Um, so Mitch is going to talk about not just sustainable development, but sustainability programs, which uh, are very 
and they can vary tremendously uh, within the operation of the city. The following week, uh, Gregory Perver Jr., uh, he is a recent PhD graduate from the Geography Graduate Center at UC Davis, and um, he studies urban forestry, and he is the education director over at um, Relief. Relief is a group that does urban forestry in uh, the Bay Area, mostly in Oakland, and so they're very engaged with the community and getting uh, people involved to improve their environments um, locally. Um, so Gregory is a is a alumni of our geography program, um, which by the way, if you're not aware, the Department of Human Ecology sponsors that graduate group. So um, um, we also sponsor the community development graduate group. So we have a couple of graduate groups uh, undergrads who probably don't know about graduate groups. Graduate groups are interdepartmental uh, entities, but they need a department in which to live. So while we are the place where they live, um, we can claim you know, we are their home, but that can move around. Um, the following week, November 6th, um, we'll have another uh, landscape architecture alumni. Lucas Griffith. Uh, Lucas, uh, I hired when I was first, when I was hired as a professor, assistant professor, I had a giant grant. I had to hire 10 people right as soon as I landed here. And uh, Lucas is one of the people I hired. Uh, he is an extraordinary uh, uh, person with, with planning and GIS uh, capability. Um, he has now been selected as the campus planner. So he, um, is working with Bob Seeger, who's one of the key players at the UC Davis um, campus for doing campus planning. Now, I've been here a really long time, over 30 years, and I've watched the Davis campus go from a really sleepy, not much happening on the, the planning side of things to becoming cutting edge. And it all happened because of Bob Seeger's vision and um, people like Lucas, who are now um, you know, being mentored by these people with incredible visions. Um, Bob uh, Seeger, um, one of the things that just blows me away is, you know, the first thing he looks at, he looks at Russell Boulevard and he's like, no bike path on Russell Boulevard on the campus? Are you kidding me? And so he was the one who cut if you look at Howard Way, you know Howard Way? Up here by the parking garage up by uh, Hunt, there's an entry. Um, there are these big concrete structures that say, welcome, you know, UC Davis, right? They were a wall that blocked uh, egress across the street. So he cut them out. If you go over there, you can see the, the cut concrete and the, you know, the aggregate inside. He cut it out so that we could have a bike path. Everybody takes that for granted who comes here now. Oh yeah, great circulation. That didn't exist before he was here. You know, it takes a landscape architect's brain to communicate these functional issues to other people to convince them that yes, we need a bike path. Um, it took until 2014 for the city of Davis to finally implement bike lanes on Fifth Street, which connects to us, right? So I don't know how many of you tried that out yet, but I really enjoyed it. It's a great way to get around town. It hasn't screwed up traffic, which is amazing. Okay, uh, a few more, and then I'll get started. Um, Petraea Marchand, uh, she's executive director of the Yolo Habitat Conservancy. And um, again, a little bit of disclosure, um, I am an advisory committee member for her, uh, for this program, the Yolo Habitat Conservancy. So I provide technical knowledge about conservation restoration for a process that Yolo County is going through right now. It has been for the past 10 years or more. These are processes that take a very long time, which is described a little bit in the intro paragraph uh, of the assignment. So what she's doing is she is the executive director uh, coordinating what's called a habitat conservation plan under the Endangered Species Act, the Federal Endangered Species and what that does is uh, stipulate um, coordinated mitigation 
for all of the development that will happen in the county in the, in the uh, five Woodland, Davis, West Sacramento, and uh, Winters are our four incorporated cities in the, in the uh, county. And then we have the county land. So there's sort of five administrative entities that permit development. And as they permit development, they have to mitigate for that. And without an HCP, without one, you would mitigate each one of those projects individually. So, oh, you've got to take it out of wetland in Walmart parking lot. Well, um, put that wetland in the corner of the parking lot. And we do that 20 times, we have 20 parking lots, you know, with a wetland in it. How good is that? You know, we know that's not that good, right? So, wouldn't it be better if we could take all 20 parking lots, cluster them together, and buy an existing wetland with existing uh, wildlife using it already over here? And that's what an HCP allows you to do. It allows you to consolidate that mitigation and uh, uh, getting more functional, more bang for your buck, more function for your dollars. Um, using this HCP approach. And there's an overlay to that process at the state level. So I was talking about the Federal Endangered Species Act. It's a way of mitigating in clusters for these endangered species at the federal level. But there are also um, the California Endangered Species Act. And we have our own list of endangered species. And there's another uh, program called the Natural Communities Conservation um, uh, planning process, the NCCP, which is also talked briefly about this in this paragraph in your intro uh, uh, assignment. And um, that's another layer of conservation over and above the HCP. So what these things are referred to is they're referred to as HCP NCCPs. Okay, and this is the part uh, some people know about this. This has been around for a while, but very few people know about that. And um, what, what this part says is you need to, uh, okay, there's a lot of legal complexities to HCPs, and I'll just uh, dumb it down quick. HCPs do not have the standard of recovery of an endangered species. That was the political wranglings of the federal government came up with that. Recovery means we're getting the species up to the point where we can take them off the list. That's the point of the Endangered Species Act. Um, the HCP says uh, we're not going to hold you responsible for recovery because it's only a portion of the range, usually of the animal. And so uh, you can keep it flatlined. That's that really getting help us. If, if you don't improve the conditions and bring up the population into sustainability. So NCCPs in California require that HCPs have a recovery standard. So that's an interesting you know, modification of the federal law uh, by state law. And this part of the plan, the NCCP, um, you can add species that are not endangered yet on here to try and prevent them from becoming listed. So if each place that was made with HCP in an NCCP, theoretically, we may never have to list another species in California yet because we're dealing with it. But not all entities choose to use NCCPs. For instance, Solano County, they're doing an HCP, and they, they found this is too expensive. Getting rid of it. So we're going to go with it. So if you're going to do the right thing, you're going to do an HCP and an NCCP. Um, I've been a, a, a strong supporter of keeping the NCCP portion in the YOLO plan because it's the right thing to do, but it is more expensive. So these are some of the issues that you have to deal with. And uh, the Davis Open Space Tax is being uh, targeted uh, to try and accommodate some of this work. This is not mitigation. The NCCP portion of this plan is not considered mitigation. This part is HCP, you take out land, you have to, in turn, replace it because you're taking out endangered species habitat. This is conservation over and above what the HCP requires. So it's a little bit extra cost, but it gets you a lot more effective conservation. 
Petraea. Petraea Marchand is, um, man, she's a navigator of some pretty tricky waters, I must tell you. The politics in this is just very thick. You can cut it with a chainsaw. Okay, uh, second to last, Susanna Everett. Um, Susanna is more in the realm of the sustainability uh, theme that I was talking about earlier. Uh, Susanna is an architect and she is um, an expert on um, uh, sort of the lead, area of lead. And um, she's gotten into this thing called the Living Community Challenge, which is um, sort of like lead supercharged and involves the landscape, I believe. I don't know enough about it to give you much more information. Uh, it's very intriguing, and I thought she would be an excellent addition. Our last speaker um, is an alumni of the Ecology Graduate Group here at UCDS, Greg Sutter. Uh, Greg, um, he's the Vice President, Executive Vice President of Westerville Ecological Services right here in Natomas. And uh, like Drew Getting, um, they do a lot of restoration. So he has what are called conservation banks. And those conservation banks of people who are having HCPs buy credits from people like Greg to meet their HCP mitigation needs. So he builds a, a reserve for endangered species. That reserve is monitored and, and um, verified that it's a functional reserve. They then are given um, permission to sell credits to HCP um, entities or even non-HCP entities that are trying to mitigate or whatever uh, they're trying to mitigate for. These things are called mitigation banks. So it's like you build something, you carve it up into credits, and then you sell the credits, uh, create an endowment, and it's managed in perpetuity. So those are the speakers. It should be a very interesting lineup. Uh, any questions about the speakers? You have more of those sheets. They're in the back there, um, but you're welcome to have mine. Okay, let's uh, get started on the light talk. I'm wondering if uh, the lights can be. Yeah, there we go. Um, this is a really cool research project that um, I'm just appearing now for publication in a journal. Um, and I have to acknowledge my co-author here. I realize I spoke for a long time and I have to zoom through this, but um, my co-author here is Dan Roller. And um, Dan was actually one of the initial consultants of the HCP for Yolo County, uh, but he's no longer uh, working on that. But uh, that's where we reconnected and actually got into a bunch of conversations, very interesting conversations. Uh, he's a birder, and I'm more or less a vegetation uh, communities kind of guy. And um, we got to chatting one day, and, and he was like, you know, you know, uh, in the spring and fall, you see a lot of birds in the valley oak trees? And I'm like, oh yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. When I bought my house, house that I live in right now, I in part bought it because it had a big valley oak tree in the back, and I knew every spring and fall, I get cool birds. Um, and it's true, every single year, I get cool birds in that tree, and I just thought, oh, that's a very interesting phenomenon, right? Well, apparently, other people have noticed this phenomenon, too, and people like Dan, Dan is a, you know, an ornithologist-type guy, um, and he decided, I'm going to measure this because I've noticed this so much in my neighborhood where I live. He lived in Curtis Park. He's since moved from there. But our study looks at um, uh, uh, and, and, and compares different urban uh, tree, uh, for different urban forests in terms of their function for migrating birds in California. So the native uh, migratory songbirds. And this is the black-throated gray warbler. Uh, the warblers tend to be a big group that we observe in uh, in the valley of trees. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background. So uh, about six percent of the Central Valley is uh, it's about a, a, a million acres is um, urban uh, is urban. 
So about a million acres of urban. 35,000 acres a year are being converted to urban in the, in the Central Valley. That's an enormous amount of land. And so as a result, we get new urban forests as we build these new cities. Um, basically, wildlife areas are, are underappreciated and really understudied. We don't know a whole lot about how wildlife are using our environments. There's a new uh, field called urban ecology that is looking at that, and that's what the, the spirit of this study is about. Um, we need more study to determine how wildlife use our urban habitats, and what characteristics in particular uh, are associated with species that we desire to have around us. Uh, so, you know, native species as opposed to being encouraging exotic species, uh, detrimental. Um, and then we need to incorporate these findings into uh, urban habitat planning and management. All right, uh, some conservation, migratory songbird conservation issues. Um, the breeding bird survey is, uh, how many of you have heard of the breeding bird survey? Wow. Um, Audubon Society um, participates, this, participates in this uh, censusing each year around June. Um, groups from all over the country uh, get out and do it about a 25-mile transect, getting out about every half a mile and counting every bird within a quarter mile that they can see. And this is compiled, and for decades this has been going on. This all started during the 60s and 70s when DDT was being used, and they saw birds, their populations just crashing because of the, the eggshell thinning due to the, due to the pesticide effect um, caused the, the young to not make it. So um, the breeding bird survey is a way for us to understand trends about large groups of, of birds. And so uh, what we found is that uh, about 53% of the migratory songbird populations that use the Central Valley are having, a, are having a problem. They're in decline. And so this is something you want to start to deal with before it becomes an endangered species issue. You want to see what you can do to mitigate for that before it becomes a big problem. So what are the causes of that decline? Well, habitat changes in the breeding uh, areas, the wintering habitat. Uh, so you have to remember that with migrating species, they spend one part of the year in one area and then another part of the year in another area, right? And these areas can be quite far apart, especially when we're talking about birds and neotropical migration, but basically we're talking about birds that travel thousands of miles each year to go from their summer habitat to their winter habitat. Um, and then of course we have migratory habitats, that's the habitat they need in order to get from A to B, right, and, and where they are at. Um, and then of course we have native, non-native species competing. Uh, we have nest parasites like the brown-headed cowbird that will lay its uh, eggs in a, in a nest and kick the eggs out of the songbird that it's the host, um, the nest parasite. And of course, climate change is affecting um, habitats for um, migratory songbirds. So um, migratory habitats are becoming um, people are becoming more conscious of them because it is what allows for the connectivity across the landscape for animals um, to move around, animals and plants to move around. Remember, plants move during which part of their life cycle? When do plants move? When they're seeds. When they're seeds, they have the opportunity to be transported by animal, by wind, etc. That's the time when they can move. So move, plants move slowly. <laughs> Uh, but sometimes they can move very quick. They get on the, you know, into some dirt, into the side of a bird's foot, and they fly 100 miles. Now they're 100 miles over there. Okay. Um, so a lot of our historic forests um, uh, have been greatly diminished. Um, I'm going to be talking about the story of the valley oak. The valley oak tree is a sad story in the Central Valley. I'll tell you that story in just a moment. Um, but our driving question 
uh, for research was to what extent is urban forest habitat serving migratory songbirds? So we're just looking at the migratory songbirds. We're looking at the residents. Um, we want to know uh, how how trees are being used by these migrating people. So this is migratory habitat. Okay. So to start off, I'm going to talk about the loss of Valley Oak Woodland in California Central Valley. So let's review. The Central Valley is this gigantic, huge valley um, in Central California here. Uh, we are right up here in the Sacramento Valley. This is the entire Sacramento Valley. Okay, so I'm going to zoom in. I'm just going to be looking at the Sacramento Valley in this next slide. A lot of stuff here. Uh, the first thing is that historically we had about one and a half million acres, one and a half million acres of valley oak habitat. Um, that comes in the form of woodlands and savannas. So woodlands are a little bit uh, described like this. A forest is a place where trees tend to be so close that they touch each other. A woodland is a forest where they don't touch each other. Okay, so it's scattered trees. A savanna is even more scattered than a, than a uh, woodland, so they're a little bit further apart. So the, the grassland tends to dominate, but you still have your few trees here and there. And that was the uh, pattern that we saw. So um, I worked with a group called the Bay Institute when I was a grad student, way back in the ancient days. And um, they hired me, they knew I was a GIS guy, and um, they really wanted a map digitized and analyzed um, that they had found in the literature. Um, and I was, I was ecstatic, I was very interested in helping them. So I digitized this map with my, uh, with my assistants. And this is a map by Elizabeth Dutzi in 1979, who mapped the, the, the Sacramento Valley's uh, riparian zones and valley oak woodlands based on historic data from um, the 1800s, where we have the township and range lines. And at each one of those markers, they would tell you what kind of trees were at each of the corners of each township, uh, of each section. Each section, so a section is a mile square, right? And townships are six square miles, or uh, 36 square miles, so six across, six down. And at each one of those crosses, they noted what trees were growing um, in that area. She plotted all that and then created a map of where all the oak woodlands were and where all the riparian forests were. She found this, basically, uh, this number. I found this number from this group right here, big long gigantic acronym, which is down there and you can't read, sorry. Um, uh, they found that right now we have about 14, about 15,000 acres. So you do the math, we're about 99% loss for all these forests. What do they use all that wood for? Brown. Anybody have any ideas? Where all those trees went? Uh, not houses. They did logging. Logging for what? Furniture. Not so much furniture. To get steamboats from Sacramento to San Francisco. So there's fuel. It was the oil of the day, full of oil, right? So they're treat down like crazy. Um, steamboats had to be run on something, that was the fuel. So most of our forests went away pretty quickly, and now they're basically relic landscapes, remnants of a former landscape. Okay, so Valley, a little bit about Valley of Ecology. Um, it's also, the Corpus Levada is the scientific name, uh, first described by me. And one of the, uh, besides Valley Oak being a common name, another common name is the California White Oak. And White Oaks are, as distinguished from Red Oaks, White Oaks have rounded uh, lobe leaves, and uh, the, uh, the Red Oaks have uh, pointy leaves. So it's weird that the black oak is actually in the red oak in the red oak group. It's a California endemic species. So what does the endemic species mean again? They exist in one particular geographic area. And what geographic area is that? 
California. So it's all contained within California, and therefore it's endemic to California. Only grows in California. So when we talk about 99% loss in the Central Valley, that's a, a lot of loss. Um, we do have quite a bit in the Central Coast, but that's going away too very rapidly. Um, we have to see these leaves. These are a picture of the leaves. They're highly lobed. Um, they have a huge lifespan. This is actually on the very low end. 600 years is low. I'll show you an example of an older one. At least they claim it is. Um, acorn productions, we have these like pointy, they're up to two inches long. They can be really big ones. Um, they exhibit masting. This is this large acorn production in certain years. Has anybody noticed that? Last year was a mast year. Oh, my oak tree. I, I've never seen that many acorns before. It was just, they were everywhere, all over the ground. I'm like, I've been here for 20 years and I've never seen this. You know, it's just, it's incredible when they go to the mast. Uh, birds catch them, they hide them, and, the, and actually that facilitate dispersal and reproduction, right? I'm sure you've all seen a blue jay bury one of these acorns, and blue jays cannot remember where all the acorns are. <laughs> I've done studies on this. So a certain amount are just buried and turned into trees. So you can come, come agriculturalists? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Um, habitat. Where do the habitat for the tree that is? So the tree is looking for alluvial floodplains and valley uplands. Um, I think I have something to describe that in a moment. They have extensive root systems and they seek groundwater. I mean, that's the goal of a valley oak tree is where's the groundwater? That's how I'm going to win this game. And they can get their tap roots down very deep into groundwater and survive in places where most species cannot. Um, it hosts a, a number of different significant wasps, hundreds of them, that produce galls. So you see those apple these things, these apple-looking things uh, around, they look like golf balls. Um, my kids like to pay attention to This is a, a, another type of gall uh, called jumping balls, and uh, like the Mexican jumping beans, and the, the ball. Uh, you'd be walking under a valley oak tree and you'll see things just moving around. You think, am I seeing things? Nope. Those, uh, those little things are, are moving around. They're jumping around. Uh, they're called jumping balls. Uh, there are many others. And then there's, um, this is great. Um, okay, there's all these cyanipid wasps that cause oak galls. Well, they're, they're parasites of the wasps that lay their egg inside the larvae of the wasp. And then it keeps going. There are, there are other parasites that lay their egg inside the larvae of the one that's laying it in this one. And it's like four levels of that. Um, a lot of evolution going on with the valley oak trees. Uh, a lot of co-evolution. Uh, here's one of our former students, Mark uh, Hernandez, helping me to measure the, uh, the DBH, uh, the diameter breast height of this tree over here in our campus, and um, 62 inches, 62 inches, over five feet in diameter. That tree is easily over 400 years old. Here's a, a, a display in, um, in Woodland in the county uh, offices, the ancient value of ancient valley oak, they carbon dated it 700 years old. Here we have, we have a 700 year old oak tree right here in Yellow County. So where do we see um, valley oaks? We usually see them on the sides of, a, of an eroding bank. So on the side that's eroding, we will have old trees. These trees fall in the river. We see them way out in the grasslands beyond the riparian zone. This would be a riparian zone with a cross section of the topo sequence and different vegetation communities. And we see them here in the Oxbow uh, Lake, uh, Lake areas as well. So in the uplands, right by the river and by the old former channels, um, we see a lot of valley oak. Valley oak is also a big component of the riparian zone. They love to get in there and um, occupy as much of that rich space as they can uh, in. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these things, just give you some idea. So what do we have for migratory songbirds? We have uh, 
spring and fall migrations, most pass through Sacramento. Some are winter residents, but not most. Most do not breed. Um, most are near tropical migrants, meaning they're coming from the New World. Um, and here are some examples. There's Grosbeak, Warbler Furios, National uh, Warbler, black throated Gray, that's one we saw earlier. Uh, Wilson's Warbler, uh, actually, let me just show you this one, Yellow Warbler, they're, they're really beautiful birds. Um, here's a, a, a sampling of some of these birds, they're really colorful. The Wood Warblers is a big group that we, that we found. Tanagers and uh, Vireos, Grosbeaks are common. These are the migrants that we're studying. So a neotropical uh, migration is from the, the tropical New World uh, up to North America. So South America and North America. So this would be considered a neotropical uh, migration path. And you can see the Pacific Flyway hosts a number of, of, of migrating animals. Uh, here's some stuff out of the CWHR system about some of these, uh, these uh, songbirds. And so here's our study area, and you can see for this species, uh, you know, they, they're just passing through the Central Valley to get to um, their summer range. So they're, they're summering in the mountains up here, then they, they fly south to South America uh, in the wintertime. Um, so they're just passing through here. In this case, it's a resident in the winter, and um, it then migrates up into the Sierra Nevada where it would uh, breed. So again, it's, it's, it's just kind of hanging out here in wintering habitat. Uh, Curtis Park, built in the 1820s, uh, 1880s to 1920s. It's uh, built amongst many valley oak trees, variety of deciduous and evergreens, high tree canopy, over 50%. Here's a nice valley oak. Uh, serves as an indication for future forests as they develop over time. Um, we had 31 transects. We surveyed both the, the migrant birds and the trees. Um, this is the neighborhood uh, that we did. This is Curtis Park. We have a series of 31 transects, some with oaks and some without oaks over here, and a park as well, and we compared all these areas. So we're really looking at Valley Oak. London Plain is a really dominant uh, species. Uh, but what we, we did is we combined all of the other species into three group, uh, key groups, deciduous, evergreen, hardwood, and conifer. Um, I was the GPS GIS guy, and so I used this uh, differential GPS. Uh, you put it on a tripod, and you can shoot these things and get the locations. And so then I overlaid those GPS points onto a, a Google Earth image. This is what it looks like after digitized. For each of these points, I, I had recorded the species that I just shot, so I knew who each dot was. Then I looked for ways of dividing up the uh, canopy so I can measure the relative areas. The red ones are the oak trees in this particular one. Bird surveys, we did um, 2010 to 2012 uh, for fall, 2011 to 2012 for spring, we uh, surveyed uh, about five to uh, 11 times each survey, averaged those, um, recorded the trees that they were using, um, and to, to be able to say um, what percent is being used uh, of those trees. This is a little bit of uh, initial data. So you see we get a lot of zeros, but then you can see a pretty good relationship here. And quantitatively, these are what are called uh, we had to use a, a technical negative binomial regression to come up with a predictive equation for both the fall and the spring. So you can see the general relationship there. It's pretty good. These are the uh, more results. So uh, valley oak is a percentage of available canopy. Okay? So the available canopy was 15%. 15%, meaning 85% is some other trees. 15%. Okay? And look at the response that we saw from these uh, these migrant birds. Let's compare this. Doesn't matter the, the, the numbers really. This this is London Plain. It represented over 40% of the available canopy. And look at the use of by, by migrant birds. It's basically a desert. Nothing compared to this. Look at that. Okay. 
Okay, so London Plain, not so great. Valiot, good. So again, migrant use of the Valiot, you know, 74% we've observed there, 15% of the canopy. Evergreen for deciduous trees, so this is what most of the canopy is, and this is the use by those migrants. Big differences. So, summary of findings here. Uh, we observed three times as many migratory songbirds in the Valley Oak canopy as compared to the other tree canopies in the city. Birds were in the Valley Oak. Um, and the high squares of the statistic based on expected values is monstrous. 924 is huge. If you got like a, a value of about 10 or 20, you're like, oh yeah, there's an effect. 900, gigantic effect. Uh, migrant songbird abundance, closely tied to value of abundance. Relationship is stronger for some species, but um, there is something for all the species there. And we saw a better fit in fall than in spring. So something's happening in spring that's not happening in fall, and the migrants are using other trees. Uh, so it's a stronger relationship in fall. So just a couple of conclusions. Um, Increased canopy of value of the benefit native trees and migrants in urban Sacramento. Tree tree planting should include more valley oak trees to create more sustainable landscapes by the Sacramento Tree Foundation and others. And I'm going to leave you with a big question, which I want to ask you: Why not? Why aren't we planting more valley oak trees in the Central Valley? People like London Plains, that's true. <laughs> ah, they're messy. These are, all, these are all the reasons I get from the uh, people like why we don't plant valley oak trees. Do we have to water valley oak trees? Hmm, we have a drought. Yeah. How do their root systems play, play out? Do they, I know they go deep, but do they also go into concrete or anything? They can lift up uh, uh, sidewalks occasionally, but so do other trees. Uh, I mean, the American elm is a much worse offender of that than the valley oak. So, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to elicit from you are some of those what are those biases that we have against the native tree, and let's get beyond that. I mean, these trees are so uh, um, appropriate for this region, we should be planting them like crazy, and really we're only planting them So, any other last minute questions? Thanks, and we'll, we'll see you uh, next week. <laughs>